And, uh, and I just want to say this, that uh, while this Song of Solomon was written to remind the Israelites of this incredible love that they could have with God. Uh, it's not primarily a marriage book, but there is a ton of stuff in this that uh, definitely fits in a relationship between husband and wife. Um, as we look at this, there are tons of things that we learn about how we can relate to one another. Uh, what we'll see again today is that the king comes back and once again sings over his wife, once again uh, explains to her and expresses to her uh, his delight in her, uh, his desire for her, and this, this incredible um, relationship that they have. I think there's a lot of stuff in this that even though we are focusing upon this relationship with Jesus because that's the context in which it was written, there's a ton of stuff you can pull out of this that will rich, uh, enrich your relationship with your spouse and help you to be able to, to, uh, to improve that relationship. Uh, some folks will preach this strictly as a marriage series, that this is, this is a million tips on how to improve your marriage, and, and there are a lot of things in that. But the context, again, of what we're looking at is this is a song that was sung in church. It was sung at the time of Passover, as the children of Israel reflected upon God delivering them from their slavery. They were slaves in Egypt, and God came, and and he took them out of slavery, and he made them his people. Uh, Not because they were anything special, but because God's love for them was special. And it was his love that was meant to transform them. And so with that in mind and understanding what he was, he was saying, in chapter 6, he sings over his bride again. And, and as he expresses to her this incredible love that he has for her, uh, she said in chapter 6, verse 12, before I was aware, my desire basically swept me away, she says. And then in verse 13, we see her friend singing back to her and saying back to her, return, return, return. In other words, they saw her heart going full speed ahead with him, and they knew in their minds, we are losing our friend. She, she is no longer going to be fully devoted to us, but she's going to be fully devoted to him. And, and they kind of call her back and say, look, don't, don't jump head first. Just, just go slow. And he says to her in the end of chapter 13, why don't you look upon her as if she's dancing between two armies? And here's what he's saying. She was once yours. And now she's mine. Don't, don't play tug of war with her, which is what Satan many times does with us. As we try to go forward with God, there's, there's always something of this world that's tugging us back and, and calling us back. And, and he says, look, I know you think you're losing her, but, but she is now mine. She once belonged to you, but now she belongs to me. The same can be said of you and I in our relationship with Christ. We were once enemies of Christ. We were once alone in this world separated from his love and now we've come into a relationship with him and as we've come into this relationship with him he wants us to be all in a marriage that is just lukewarm a marriage that's just halfway committed is not a marriage worth being a part of and neither is it enough for us to just say you know what i'm i'm, I'm gonna call myself a believer and and i'm gonna go to church from time to time and 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 yet i'm not gonna leave behind any of that past i'm just gonna continue to walk with one foot in both worlds and he describes that as doing a dance between two armies so chapter seven he is going to come back out and break out in song again He's going to say some of the same things that he's already said once or twice before. And and you may ask the question, why in the world would he repeat himself again? Why would he say some of these same things over and over again? 
And my answer would be because that's what love does. Love doesn't just make a promise on, on your wedding day as you stand before the, the altar and stand before the Lord. But, but a, a marriage is something that we work out again and again and again. We don't just tell our wife on the day we marry her that we love her, but we remind her daily through our actions and through our words and, and, and through the, the way that we treat her that she is loved every single day. So why does he repeat himself? Because that's what love does. He's, like we said last week, he's trying to get this song that he's singing to, to, to stick in her mind. So that as she goes through her day, it replays itself again and again and again. And she is reminded over and over of how much she means to him. So he never ever stops singing this song over her. Love is like this fountain that is continually flowing. And as he sings his song over her, she listens and she... Uh, she appreciates what, what she has in him. I've, I've been amazed over the years at how many people that they look at marriage as if they're hunting a bargain. You know, man, I was, when I was single, you know, I was out there and I was just, I was searching everywhere and looking for the, 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 the bargain. And, and what they mean by a bargain is they, they want to find somebody that they can give a little and get a lot. <laughs> and that's a bargain. Isn't that what happens when you go to the store? You, you want to pay a little and you want to get a lot. And you do that and you think, man, I've got this bargain. And some people approach their marriage that way. I, I want to be married because that's cool. But, but I just want to give a little, but I want to get a whole lot back in return. And they're hunting a bargain. And, and the bigger the gap between what they give and what they get, the more they think they can brag about what they've got. I remember running into a, a friend at the corner store a couple years back. And we were talking just about marriage and stuff. And, and, and he says, man, I have the best wife and the best marriage. And I said, really? And I, I would argue with that because I think I do. But, but tell me about yours. And this is the way he described his marriage. He says, the best marriage, the best wife. He says this. These were his words. He says, I do what I want, and she never complains. He's now divorced, by the way. That doesn't work very good. I do what I want, and she never complains. That's the best marriage possible. And I'm going, no, that's not. That's not it. So some approach it as this, this, they're hunting a bargain, But God doesn't approach our relationship with him that way. God doesn't go at it that way. God's not gone on on a a bargain hunt. God is trying to honor his bride with blessings that he pours out on her. I know I've told you a story before about being in Africa and and our driver, driver Emmy, we called him, um, describing uh, his wife. And and I remember I told you about the, the, the banana truck that passed with a cow in the back and a rocking chair and some gifts in it. And they were all honking their horns, so excited to, to be driving down the road. And they come flying past our little bus, and, and they're just honking and waving, and they're so excited. And I said, okay, what's the story here? What's the, what's, why are they so excited? they got this red heifer tied up in the, in the, the front of the, the bed, and they've got this rocking chair, and they've got all these gifts. And he says, well, he's going to get his bride. And I'm like, all right, I'm from America, man. You've got to explain. He goes, well, here when you, when you go to, to claim your bride, you give a, a bride's gift, a, a bride's price. And and so he is giving the father a cow, and the rocking chair is for the father to sit in, and those gifts are gifts that he's going to give to the father in exchange for his daughter's hand in marriage. And he says, he's, he's marrying a one-cow woman, is what he said. And I said, oh, and his wife had passed away about a year before I was there. And I said, driver Emmy, tell me about your wife. And he says, oh, 
where should I start? You know, and he begins to describe his wife to me and, and just the love that he felt for her. And I said, was she a one-cow wife? He goes, oh, no. She was a five-cow wife. I said, five? He goes, I would have given more, but that's all I had. And then he lost her. But I thought, you know, this is a guy who's not bragging about the bargain he's got. He's saying, I gave everything I had, and I would have given more had I had it. That's the way God looks at us in this relationship with him, is that he's not looking and going, okay, what kind of a bargain can I get? When, when God gets us, guys, let's be honest, he's not getting a bargain, okay? When God chose us, it wasn't because we were a great deal. It wasn't because of everything that we could give to God. And, and I can give a little, God says, and I can get a whole lot back. In fact, just the opposite was true, wasn't it? God gave us everything. And so often all we're able to do is to give back a small part. So chapter 7, he begins to sing over his wife again. The previous times that he sung over his wife, he kind of starts at the, at the head with the hair and he begins to move down her body and describe the different features of her and how beautiful that she is in his eyes. This time he starts from the ground up. He says, how beautiful are your feet in sandals. He says, I love it when you dance. I love to watch you dance. Some commentators believe that, of course, they're alone and that she may be dancing either in a very thin dress or undressed before him. And he's saying to her, I, how beautiful you are when you dance. Oh, noble daughter. Remember we said last week that she found her identity in him. When she made that statement that I am his, she's not just saying I belong to him, but she's saying that's my identity. You want to know who I am? My identity is found in him. And our identity is found in Christ. And so it's this beautiful picture in this song, even though it's a song about a, a husband and a wife together, it's a song about us and our relationship with Christ. And anytime we try to find our identity in anything other than in Jesus Christ, we, we fail to achieve everything that we ought to. We sell ourselves short. And so he's saying to her how beautiful it is when you dance. The nobility that he is describing about her is the nobility that came from him. Remember where he found her? She was the field hand that was forced into the fields to work. Her skin was dark because she had never been allowed to, to work a day inside. She had always been put out in the fields and kind of abused by her family. But he's changed all of that about her. Now she is described as this noble daughter. So he describes her feet and, and the dancing that she's doing. He says, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master's hand. And so, again, begins to describe the beauty that he sees in her. She is perfectly crafted. He says, your thighs are gorgeous. What he's going to do in these next few verses, guys, is really, really cool. He is going to speak of the delight that she brings to him. In the first six verses. Verses 7 through 9, he's going to move to the desire that he feels for her. And then when we get to verse 10, it's going to be the high note, I believe, of the whole song of Solomon. Verse 10, where he sings that for her. He describes how that, that he loves to see her dance unashamed before him. It's pictures back to the Garden of Eden where, where husband and wife are together and they are naked and they feel no shame and they are there in the presence of one another enjoying the great gift that God has given to them. I was also reminded of, of in the Psalms where Solomon's dad, King David, as the ark was brought into town, remember what King David did? 
He danced. He danced naked in the presence of the Lord. His wife was upset, but David was unashamed. And we get that picture here of her before him. And he says, man, you are gorgeous. You are beautiful. Your thighs are like jewels, the work of a master's hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. It's inviting, it's pleasing, it's satisfying to my eyes. He describes her belly. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Oh boy, what's he trying to say? I mean, these images, I know we've got to stop and kind of think. And and I'm not one of these that can read poetry. You know, I used to go to those English classes you had in college. And they say, read this poem and come back and tell us everything it means. And I'm like, I haven't got a clue. Maybe you're like that. And, and so as I read these things, I really wrestle with what, what he's trying to say. And, 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 and as you go back and you remember how they would gather the wheat, they would cut the wheat with a sickle. And they would take the long stalks and they would stack them up and they would put a, a string or something around the wheat. And he's describing this hourglass figure, if you will, this wheat that's standing with the, the tie around it. And he says that, that, that wheat in the field reminds me of the shape of your body, this hourglass figure encircled with lilies. It's got the belt or the sash around it. It's accentuating your beauty. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, a description that he's used before describing his delight in that part of her body. Your neck is like an ivory tower. It's stately. It's strong. Your eyes are pools and heshbon by the gate of Bathrema, Rabim. That water was deep and clear and enchanting to look into. He says, your eyes are like that. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon. Guys, try that on your wife. Let me know how it goes. It looks toward Damascus. It's just saying your features are majestic. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. It kind of caps off the package, he says. And your flowing locks are like purple. They're royal. They're gorgeous. In fact, he says, a king is held captive in your, in your hair, in your tresses. Then he says something in verse 6 that I think is so neat. He's described her body again and how beautiful she is in his sight. And then he says in verse 6, how beautiful and pleasant you are. There are people in this world who are beautiful, but not pleasant. You met some of those? You look at him on the outside and you go, man, that is a gorgeous person. That is a handsome dude. And then you get up close and you go, man, I was fooled by that. He says to her, you are beautiful, but you're also pleasant. I love what I see on the outside, but even more, I love what I see on the inside. It's what makes you who you are. So he says, how beautiful and how pleasant you are, O loved one. With all of your delights. He, he describes her and her body and her, her, her character and all these things as just being delightful in his eyes. Again, I don't know how easy or how difficult it is for you to imagine the Lord speaking that over you. I don't know if when we talk about the Lord speaking over his bride and saying to us, Man, I take great delight in you. I see you as my 
my, my perfect one. I see you as one that, that I love and that I would pay all that I have to be in a relationship with. I don't know if that rings true or if that's just a hard thing for you to be able to believe. I grew up with a performance type mentality that I've got to perform well in order to be loved well. I've got to do good in order for other people to like me. And so I grew up with that mentality of of performance. And it's kind of that that goodness gospel that we've talked about before where you think that if I'm going to get God to really love me, then I've really got to do this right. I've really got to do this good or else God won't love me. And, And that's kind of the mentality that I grew up with. And it's really hard at times for me to comprehend the fact that God just loves me. When you read through the Song of Solomon, not once do you hear him say, man, I love you for your cooking. I love the way you clean house. I love the way you take care of the... It's it's not I love you because you do. It's because I love you, period. And I love everything about you. How beautiful and how pleasant you are. With all of your delights, all the things that you've stored up that you keep blessing me with, what a delight, he says, it is. He loves what he sees on the inside and the out. He loves her beauty, but also her character. He loves her features, but he also loves this faith that she has placed in him. Her true beauty flows from within. And it makes everything on the outside even more beautiful. Husbands, can you say that about your wife? That what really makes her a a beauty in your eyes is not just what's on the outside that other people get to see. But it's what's on the inside that you get to see that makes her gorgeous. Verse 7 Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like its clusters. So he's describing again these physical features. And and some would say that he's talking about her from a a profile now as he looks at her and her her body and then her, her breasts are like the clusters that are there. And as he describes this great delight that he takes in her, he now shifts his attention from his delight to his desire. And listen how he describes this desire. He is no longer content just to be a spectator gazing upon her. Now he wants to be a participant with her. Listen to what he says. Verse 8. I will climb the palm tree and I will lay hold of its fruit. So he's just described her as this palm tree with clusters. And now he says, my desire is to be intimate with you. To to be not just standing at a distance looking at you, but I want to be up close and I want to be personal. I want to enjoy all of the delights that you bring to the table. I want to enjoy you in your fullness. His heart longs for intimacy with her. His heart longs to be with her because she is his love. 
So his desire is for her, and he longs for this intimacy to occur between them. This is Now listen, we've already passed the honeymoon, we've already passed the wedding night, we've already passed all of those kinds of things, and, and they are well into their marriage. And even as they move well into their marriage, this fire is kept alive, this desire is still there. They are still bringing out, if you would, bringing out of the cupboard more and more delights, more and more things that they are finding in each other. There's new discoveries every day. And he's saying to her, I want you to know that even after all this time, you still satisfy me and I still desire you. He says it this way, I say these things. I speak. And the Bible says out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so he is making his heart known to her and he is letting her know what she uh, is to him and how, how desirous he is to be with her. And to lay hold of the fruit, to to enjoy all that she has to offer him. And then this next part of verse 8. He says, Oh, may your breast be like the clusters of the vine, the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Here he is expressing anticipation of the delight that he will find in her and in his relationship with her. He's saying, may it be this way. This is, he's not saying I'm experiencing it and oh, it's so great. He's saying, this is, this is what I've envisioned all of my life. This is what I've longed for. This is what I have anticipated. May your breast be like the clusters of the vine. May, may the scent of your breath be like apples and may your mouth be like the best wine. He anticipates the delight that she will bring to him. May this be, he says. So he expresses his desire for her and for this continued intimacy between them to continue. And if this seems to be too personal, if this seems to be too much information for us, it's, it's really not. Because this was expressed in private between two lovers. It's that desire to love and to be loved that we all have within us. And it's there, and he is expressing this to her. And, and, and these things are only shared in private and not in public. Next week, when we come back and finish up this series, she's going to make some statements about how that she, she wishes that he were her brother so that she could display all of this love, even in public, because she's so unashamed of the way that she feels about him. But their culture in that day had no room for public displays of affection. And so here she's saying, this is private and we are together. And he is speaking this into her ear. And he is desiring to draw closer and to be intimate with her. Lovers can share those most intimate thoughts and those feelings with one another when they are alone. You share things in private that you would not share in public. Think about that in the spiritual realm, if you will. We gather together for worship in public. And yet there may be things that God wants to speak to us that he only speaks in private. That he only speaks when it's just he and us together. And so if the only time that we are in the presence of God, if the only time that we're hearing the voice of God is when we've been gathered together in a public worship, Think of what you're missing. The the most intimate conversation that that he's going to have in this whole psalm, the the most intimate description of, of the intimacy that he wants to have with her would have been missed if all she had was a public display, if all she had was what she was hearing from him in public. He saves the best for private. And guys, listen, if we're not having that private communion with God, 
We're missing some of the most intimate, loving things that God wants to say to us. We don't need to have a quiet time so that we can impress God that we've read the Bible a little more today. We don't need to have a quiet time so I can just check it off my to-do list. We need to have a quiet time because it's in those quiet, intimate moments with God that he makes himself, his desire, and his delight known to us. That's when God speaks those most intimate thoughts to us. So just as he speaks it to his wife in private, God speaks those things to us in private as well. Those intimate thoughts are, are, are reserved for those private moments alone. So if all we're getting is corporate worship and that's it, then then that's good. We're still aware of God's love for us, but we may not be fully aware of everything that God wants to say and everything that he wants to speak to us. So he finishes up his song and he says, "I, I anticipate your response. And here's what's neat. He makes known to her again and again and again all that he loves about her, all the love that he has for her, what she means to him, what he desires to to have with her, and then he waits. So he expresses his desire. He anticipates the delight that is to come. And now he awaits her response. He doesn't force himself upon her. He doesn't say, you are mine and you will do. He expresses his love. And then he waits. God does the same thing with us. He sings his song over us again and again and again. And then he waits. And he says, what what will your response be? How will you respond to this incredible love that I have for you? One of the reasons that I wanted to do this series in Song of Solomon is this, that we will never become fully devoted followers of Christ. We will never become disciples of Christ until we allow that song to capture our heart and we respond to it. Listen, God did not die on a cross to make churchgoers. He didn't even die on a cross to make moral people. He didn't die on the cross just to make this world a better place to live or to give us a good example of how to love others. He died on the cross to save us and to make us his own. And he's done all of that, displaying for us again and again this incredible love that he has for us. But it didn't just stop at the cross. Sometimes we say, well, you want to know how much Jesus loves you? Look at the cross. And we talked about that last week. But guys, it's not just the cross, but it's everything since then. It's the song that he continues to sing over us day after day after day as he looks at us and says, Oh, I take such delight in you. I take such joy in how you're living and what you're doing and how you're serving and who you are. I take delight in that. And so after expressing his desire, after... uh, Speaking the the great anticipation that that he has in her. Now he waits for her response. In the second half of verse 9, she responds to him. He has said, hey, I I, I hope that, that, you know, may your your breast be like these clusters of of the vine. Talking about wine and and juice and and, and the scent of your breath like apples and, and, and your mouth be like the best wine. And here's what she says. It goes down smoothly for my beloved. 
gliding over lips and teeth. The NIV says it maybe a little clearer in a way that, that makes it a little more flow and a little more sense to, to us. This is what the NIV says in verse 9. May, may the wine go straight to my lover, flowing gently over lips and teeth. You say you delight in me and that, and, and that you anticipate that this, this connection that we have will be like the finest of wines. May that wine flow to my lover. May it flow gently over his lips and his teeth. Here's what she's saying. That's my desire too. My desire is to be pleasing. My desire is to be, is to be everything that you have anticipated that I will be. That's my desire as we come together. And then verse 10, the highlight, I think, of the whole Song of Solomon. She said before, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. But she says something even more here. She's not saying that we are just connected by a contract. We don't just have a marriage covenant. That we don't just have a a piece of paper that says I belong to him and he belongs to me. But look what she says this time. I am my beloved's. That's my identity. That's who I am. That's how I see myself now as I am his. And look at this. And his desire is for me. He doesn't just love me, but he likes me. He doesn't just say, okay, you're my wife. But I've become the apple of his eye. I am his. It's who I am. But man, his desire for me just blows me away. He loves me. He wants me. He desires me. Again, it's that, that idea of to, to, to love and to be loved in return. And not just by anybody, but by the king of kings. Do you know that God loves you that much? Do you, do you know that, that he doesn't just love you, but that he desires to be with you? He didn't just love you enough to die on a cross and save you, but he desires to be intimately involved in every single moment of every single day. That's who God is, and that's how he wants to have a personal relationship with you. It's not just a once-a-week a drop-in visit, but it's a moment-by-moment living of your day in his presence for his glory. So her response is, man, may I be everything that you want me to be. Verse 9. Verse 10, I am his. That's who I am. And, And his desire is for me. I am so blessed. She said, it's true that God says this about me. Yet there's many in our world, guys, that still don't know that. They see God as some angry tyrant that's just waiting to, to thump them off or to punish them or to, or to, to discipline them because he, he's just ready to, to, to find everything wrong with them. And that's not the picture of the God of the Bible. She says, I give myself to him. And I wonder if we are offering ourselves to God like that. Are we saying to God each day, Lord, may this day that I'm going to live, may this day be lived in a way that is pleasing to you. May I live my day in the way that you've anticipated me to live this day. Is it our desire that our lives would be pleasing to him in that way? Verse 11, she says, come, my beloved, come. You say you want to come and you want to climb the tree. Come. 
Let's be intimate. In fact, let's go out into the fields, she says. Let's lodge in the villages. Let's get away from this place. It's too busy. Let's get out there where we can really have some time alone. Just you and me. Let's go into the fields. Let's lodge in the villages. So she invites him to come and to enjoy all that she has to offer. She says, let's get away. Let's leave everything behind. Let's explore some new places. Make some new memories. Have some new experiences together. Let's keep this thing fresh. Let's go out early to the vineyards. And let's see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened, and the pomegranates are in bloom. She talked about that in chapter 6, if you remember, exploring all this love and this love. And and these things, these these buds and these blossoms and these blooms are are, are not just fully opened and they're not all there. But she says, let's go and look at those things again and and see how our love continues to blossom and continues to open. Buds are, are potential blooms, if you will. And so she describes these things that have so much potential. Let's, let's keep a, a close eye on, on how our love is progressing. Let's continue to work in this marriage. Let's continue to see it open up and see it develop. Let's watch it as it goes. So let's go out early. And then she says at the end of that verse, There I will give you my love. There, as we are alone together, Enjoying all the blessings that have come and the blessings that are yet to come. I will give you my love. Mindful of all that he's provided and how far he has brought her. All the way from the field hand now to the palace into his presence. She gives herself freely to him without any reservations. She says the mandrakes give forth Fragrance. Those were considered to be kind of aphrodisiacs that, that would, you know, you'd say love is in the air kind of thing. The mandrakes give forth a fragrance, and beside our doors are, are all the choice fruits. All the preparations have been made, she says. I've packed a picnic lunch. We've, we've, we've got everything that we need to have this incredible relationship. It's all been provided. New as well as old. Listen to what she's saying. Let's go off together. Let's be intimate together. Let's enjoy one another together. Let's explore. Let's, let's, let's enjoy the old and let's explore the new. We've only just scratched the surface. Let's enjoy the parts of our relationship that we've enjoyed before. But let's don't stop there. There's still more to be discovered. There's still more to be done. There's new and there's old, these things which I've laid up for you, my beloved. I keep finding more and more to give. When you're in a marriage that's built upon God's word, a marriage that is everything that God has designed it to be, you find in that marriage that you wake up today and you go, you know what, I love my spouse as much as is humanly possible. I don't think I can love them any more than I do right now. And then you wake up tomorrow and you go, oh, wow, there's more. There's more. I don't know how many times I've told Janet that I I don't think I could love you more than I love you right now. Just to look back a week later and say, you know what? I was wrong. I love you more right now than I did a week ago. 
And it's because we continue to discover new things about one another. It's because we continue to pour more into this relationship. We continue to, to give and to give and to give. And we're not looking for a bargain. We're looking to give a blessing. And, and if you want your marriage to thrive and if you want your relationship with others to thrive, then you need to be the one that's saying, you know what, I want to give more than the other person gives. And I want to be the blesser and not just the, the, the taker. I want to be the one who gives more to my spouse than I take from my spouse. And she's discovered that that's the kind of man that she has. And she says, look, we've got everything we need. It's all right here beside the door. There's new stuff as well as the old stuff. And it's all good stuff. And she says, I've laid it all up for you. I've saved it for you. It's all yours. You know why? Because I am yours. And your desire is for me. And together we will have this incredible relationship together. I think about how much the Lord knows about me, and yet he still loves me. And I think about Psalm 139. Let me just read to you several verses out of this psalm. I'm going to read it out of the NIV. Uh, it says it this way. It says in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. That's a scary thought, that God can know everything about us, the good, the bad, the ugly. It says, you know when I sit, you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. In fact, even before the word leaves our tongue, he is aware of what we are thinking. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. And you laid your hand upon me. Remember how when the friends called her back, he says, no, 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 she's mine. He's hemming her in, if you will. He is protecting her from anything that would, would call her back. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go that you're not there? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, well, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, then you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. She's learned this about her groom. We've, we've watched the progression of this story as, as there's been two dreams where she's awakened and, or in that dream she's been alert that, that he's not there and she's gone searching and she says, no matter where I go, you are right there with me. You've not abandoned me. Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say or if I fear, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me. Even the darkness... Is not dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. And then listen to this as you hear God sing over you today. Again, a song that was sung in the church. Listen to the, the, the chorus of this psalm. As David sings out to the Lord, he says, Lord, you created my inmost being. You are the one that knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Do you doubt that God could really love you? Do you doubt the depths of His love and affection and delight in you? He created you. He knit you together. He saw you before you were ever even created. And even more than that, He's ordained every day of your life. It was written in His book before one of those days came to be. And then He says this, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Our bride in the Song of Solomon could say the same thing about her groom. Oh, your words, your thoughts toward me are, are, are so vast. I couldn't count them. The ways that you show your love, the ways that you speak your love to me, those things are so grand that, that, that even if I were able, there, there's just no way I could count them all. I grew up in a home where love was freely given and freely expressed by my parents to me. Never once do I remember going to bed wondering if I was loved. Because I was told that I was loved again and again. My parents showed me that I was loved again and again. But I'm painfully aware that there are those, even in our church, that may have never been told that by their parents. I remember Thomas's testimony that he gave. The first time he remembers his mom saying that she loved him and hugging him was the day he deployed to go to war. And Thomas is not alone. There are a lot of people who have never had their spouse reaffirm again and again and again that they are loved, that they are cherished, that they are valued, that they are special. There are some that have never heard those words from their parents. But even if we haven't heard it from other human beings, we can hear that from the Lord. And we can know that, that we are loved by Him. That He pursues us the way that this man pursues his wife. This picture is, a, is the best that we can do to put it into human terms, this incredible love that God has for us. It's, it's, it's the, the love of a man for a woman, even the perfect love like we see here in Song of Solomon, is, is, is this compared to this thing that God has for us. But it's the best that we've got to be able to describe it. And so the Song of Solomon lays it all out there and describes to us this incredible love that, that the Father has for us. It's the love that the psalm describes. It says, how precious are your thoughts toward me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count that high, I still wouldn't be able to count because they would outnumber the grains of the sand on the seashore. So as we close today, I ask you this. How could we remain lukewarm in our response to God? 
He has expressed his great love for us. He has expressed his great desire to be in intimate relationship with us. He's described his desire not just to be with us from time to time, but to be with us moment by moment throughout our day. How can we be lukewarm in our response to that? How can we approach that kind of love half-hearted? How could we remain undecided? about what we will do and how we will respond when that kind of a love is expressed to us. We will never find a love that will come close to his love for us. I ask you today as I close, have you ever discovered how much God really desires you? Not because God's out there looking for a bargain, because we are anything but that, but because God wants to bestow upon you the blessings that he's intended to bestow upon you from the very beginning of time. He created you. He knows everything about you. And he has demonstrated at the cross and, and even in his pursuit ever since that moment, his love for you. He invites you to come, to listen as he sings over you. And then he awaits your response. How will you respond to this incredible love that he has for you? How will you respond to that invitation? Would you be like this bride who says, may everything be pleasing to you? I give myself freely, completely to you. Will you say yes to him today? And if you've already given your heart and your life to Christ, but you've pulled back, would you say to the Lord today, Lord, I I want to go all in. I don't want to go halfway. I don't want to be just a lukewarm bride. I don't want to be a a bride that yawns her way through this relationship. But I want to be everything that you've called me to be. As we close today, you will make a choice. Even if you say, well, I'm not going to choose right now. That's the choice. You'll choose either to leave today as you came Or you'll choose to draw close, to give yourself to him, and to experience his love even more fully than you ever have before. Your creator, king, expresses his delight in you. Despite all of our shortcomings and all of our failures, he still loves us. He's expressed his delight. He's made known his desire. And now he awaits our response. Let me encourage you. Don't leave here today the same as you came. He sings over you. And now he waits for your response. Will you once again give yourself completely to him? And say, Lord, I'm ready to be yours completely. Whatever that looks like, whatever that involves, it's worth it because I know that I and my beloveds in his delight, your delight, God, is in me. Let's pray.